The refugee situation in Europe has been the story of this summer. So by now you probably all know to death that we are in a historic refugee crisis, that the UN has never counted more refugees before. Right now, one out of every 122 persons on this planet is a refugee. Luckily, that still leaves many of us without first-hand experience of fleeing our homes. If you're one of us, this is your chance to go on a vicarious cruise. Sail away on the MS Europe. All insights inclusive. Hop aboard a sinking ship on this cruise of the European refugee system. We've tried to find experts who can explain what's wrong with Europe's system and how to fix it. But first and foremost, we've collected stories from refugees on all points of their journey towards Europe. From leaving Syria to reaching the shores of Greece to sitting in an asylum center in Denmark. We apologize beforehand for all the naval metaphors, afraid they won't stop within the next half hour. My name is Ole Krogsgaard. And I'm Freja Eriksen. We'll be your captains on this Planet Mundus short. Og lige nu her på DR1 sidder Tine Goethe klar til at præsentere TV-avisen. Hier ist das erste deutsche Fernsehen mit der Tagesschau. Our first stop on this cruise is in Denmark. We wanted to get in touch with someone who'd done the entire trip that we're about to take you on. So we reached out to the Danish Red Cross, who run many of the asylum centers in Denmark. They sent us to a tiny town called Jelling. Here we met Omar Jabber, a charming Syrian refugee who was happy to show us around the asylum center that had been his home for seven months. This head office. Yeah. This head office for the center. So all the office buildings are very nice and look <laughs> very nice, huh? Beautiful brick walls. Yeah. And then we come to where you sleep and then it's no problem. all just, barracks. Just if you have the, the office is good, it's good. <laughs> exactly. Omar was actually about to leave the asylum center. And for the best possible reason, his asylum had been granted. He had made it. But only after a long and grueling process. Omar had been working in the Arab United Emirates for over a decade, but because of the unrest in Syria, the Emirates wouldn't renew his work permit. Going back to Syria wasn't an option, so he chose to empty his savings and travel. Going to Jordan, and after that moving to Turkey. After that, Greek. After that, Italy. After Italy, I come to Denmark. Long way and very hard way. It took three boat trips before Omar made it to European soil. One trip turned out to be a scam, another almost cost him and 20 other people their lives. First time I'm going, I uh, will have a small boat going to uh, land from Turkey to land the coast in the, in the Greek. In the way, will boot fell down in the beach. After that, swimming seven hours to going to coast, uh, coastland. Seven hours Seven of hours swimming. swimming. I have 20 person in my, inside the boat. 20 person. And thanks for uh, not dying. So when the boat turned over, mm-hmm. you were 20 people on the boat. 20 were people you the only one who swam? Like Yeah, I am uh, better than any people who swim. Because I know swimming more than any people. Okay, some people coming with me just have an hour and uh, tired. I tell him back, I will continue. But 
I am not thinking seven hours. If you're thinking seven hours, I am not going. I'm thinking maybe one hour, two hours, just. But not have choice because you're maybe you'll die. You and twenty billion. Omar had actually accepted that the Mediterranean would become his grave, but after seven hours of swimming, he saw a boat. I tell him come from Turkey. Tell me you drink. <laughs> I'll tell him no, just have, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, like because if, if, you were, if you were drunk. Yeah, if you drink, because uh, you're coming from Turkey, how do you coming? I tell him no, I'm coming from the boot, the boot fell down. Omar Jabbar wasn't drunk and you've probably heard many stories of his kind. In fact, more than 2,500 refugees have died trying to cross the Mediterranean this year alone. These deaths could easily have been prevented if the political will was there. But for as many who die, many more make it to the borders of Europe. In the period where 2,500 died, over 350,000 survived. This number is so much higher than what Europe has been used to that the system handling them seems close to a crash. But some European countries are undoubtedly under more pressure than others. A border state like Greece, for example, is reachable by seaways from Turkey, so it's come to serve as an entrance to Europe for refugees. One busy entry point is the Greek island Kos, where we head next on our luxury cruise. Kos is after all a classic tourist destination, normally overrun in the summer. But this year they're swimming in refugees. Just in July, the island, which has 31,000 inhabitants, received 7,000 refugees. Outside the police station, down by the waterfront where many refugees gather, I met Syrian Ruba Hadad, her husband and kids. They were just a normal family, working in homes, until ISIS came to Palmyra. When uh, ISIS came to Palmyra, we were very, very afraid they, because they make massacre there. As a Christian family, they didn't at all feel safe. They really kill people and especially they kill Christian people. They kill them. They cut their heads. Having made it to Kos, the family had given their passports to the Greek police and were now waiting for papers letting them move on to Athens. But it was taking longer than they had expected. This island, especially this island, takes too long to get the paper. Most refugees I talked to in Kos said the normal waiting time was 20 days, which can seem a long time to a refugee family. Hotel rooms in Kos aren't that cheap, and although there is a refugee camp on the island, it's not a place for kids, says Ruba. But when invited to come see the camp by two Pakistani brothers at the same police station, I said yes. My turn? The refugee camp on Kos is based in the old Captain Elias Hotel. See, now we're talking luxury cruise. There's a big swimming pool with no water. A grand foyer, its floors covered by worn mattresses with sleeping refugees on them. In fact, most square meters of the Captain Lies Hotel are covered by worn-out refugees. The landing of the stairs, the rooftop, the outdoor tents and hallways. And the facilities leave something for the imagination. I asked Afghani refugee Said Ishmal about them. And how are the... Like the water and power conditions? No power. Water, you should pay money. No shower, even no toilets. This is so sh shameful. Even no power. This is an European country. Although Kos Refugee Camp is not a final destination, a few weeks can seem a long time to wait in a rampaged hotel with no power, no real toilets, no showers or no kitchen. 20 days, it's just so much time, just like jail. Stay here, you can go anywhere. Said Ishmal was a young university teacher of economics in Afghanistan. 
until anonymous phone callers started threatening him to convert his students into suicide bombers. So he fled by plane to Iran and was smuggled by foot into Turkey, a 49-hour walk in the mountains with no food or water. They had to improvise, drinking water from the hole in a stone. We drank that. Yeah. Like Discovery Channel, I, I think you had, <laughs> you had seen, yeah? yeah? Discovery Channel, you, you, have, you have nothing to eat or drink. When I met Saeed Ismail, he was stuck on costs waiting for his papers, like many others. Refugees are yelling, we want papers, on this footage from August. Frustrated refugees started riots outside the quiet police station in Kos just a few weeks after I visited. In the video, you see policemen beating refugees and fire extinguishers were used against them. According to reports, 2,500 asylum seekers were locked in a soccer stadium after the riots the same day, without any access to water or food or shade and only three police officers were assigned to register all of the refugees before letting them leave the stadium. Now, Greece is going through a deep financial crisis and the country clearly doesn't have the resources to take care of all these refugees. So why isn't Greece receiving any help from the other European member states? Europe actually has a common refugee system. It's governed by the Dublin regulation. This means that all asylum seekers must register and seek asylum in the first European country they arrive in to make sure people don't go from country to country trying their luck. So to put that in naval terms, our cruise ship may be sinking, but at least we're all in the same boat? Yeah, in a way. Like we've already talked about, some countries receive more refugees than others for obvious geographic reasons. So the burden falls kind of unfairly and there doesn't seem to be much solidarity on board. In fact, one expert we've talked to calls the current situation a solidarity crisis. This is Thomas Gammeltoft Hansen, the research director at the Danish Institute of Human Rights. We called and asked him about the status of the European refugee system. First of all, he stressed, the current system has many positive sides. In Europe, for the first time, a number of states have actually decided on a common set of minimum standards on how to process asylum seekers and their rights. His point, we shouldn't underestimate that this has really raised the bar in many countries. But the unequal distribution of refugees is creating a lot of problems, as Gameltoff Hensen says. That's now led to such a tense situation that um, several member states are simply not playing by the rules. Um, so you have Italy, which, uh, according to several reports, is not registering asylum seekers properly, meaning that there'll be little or no way of, of proving that they actually traveled through Italy. Greece and Italy can't and won't keep up with all the refugees arriving by boat. So they've stopped registering them all. But the other European countries won't take the refugees either. In fact, as a counter move, they tried to block as many refugees as possible from even accessing their territories without breaking the law. According to Gamletov Hansen, there are many examples of this kind of creative legal thinking. So basically, you, you have a number of states who pay lip service to the refugee regime, to the refugee convention. Yet in practice, what they do is to find all the possible loopholes. How can we design stricter policies that will lead more people to go elsewhere? I get it. There is a lack of solidarity amongst the EU member states. So why doesn't Europe just drop the conventions and shake off their commitments? 
Well, first of all, it would tear on a government's mother Teresa account. Secondly, there's something we shouldn't forget, says Gameltoft Hansen. Abandoning the conventions would send an unfortunate signal to states outside Europe who are actually taking on a lot more refugees. You have to remember that the developing states or states and regions of origin like Lebanon or Jordan is bound by these very same instruments. So if we were to simply withdraw from this convention, we send a very strong signal to these countries that they could do the same. And the likely result would be a huge expansion in number of refugees moving towards Europe. The European Union is not taking a fair proportion of the world's refugees. And although Europe may not be able to take in all of Lebanon's refugees tomorrow, we need to step up. So my argument is that we need to pay some kind of a price now. To my mind, that would be a more financial aid. But the second thing, and I think equally important, would be to offer some kind of hands-on solidarity to the Lebanese government. And I think the problem in a lot of the European discourse is that those two things are almost always presented as neither. We need to give more money and help by taking the most vulnerable refugees off Lebanon's shoulders, or else the consequences may be serious. If we do not do both of these things, I could understand if Lebanon decided to suddenly close its borders, withdraw from the refugee convention and expel pretty much all their current refugees tomorrow. Sounds scary. Lebanon is a small country of only about six million people. In August, the country had in all taken in more than a million just Syrian refugees. Europe altogether has granted asylum to about 150,000. We need to help bordering countries like Lebanon simply so they don't collapse. It's crucially important to ensure that we have some kind of support to Lebanon in order to keep them invested in this regime in a genuine way, something that recognizes the extraordinary burden placed on this country as a result of the current global refugee crisis. It may not be an equal distribution of of refugees across the globe, but, but it's a step in the right direction. And I think that's exactly what is needed now if these countries are not to collapse. On that last note from Thomas Gammeltoft Hensen, let's cruise on. What actually happens if you're Dutch being registered in Greece? How do you move on from there? To understand that, we checked back in with Omar from Syria, whom you met in the beginning. After two failed attempts, he finally made it to Europe. He knew he wanted to go to Denmark, so now he just needed the necessary tool, a fake passport. When you arrive with a boat and you need to get a passport, how, how do you know where to go? Do you find them on Facebook and then you make arrangements? Yeah, yeah you, can, or? you can, you can, you can ask and then go to Europe in the Facebook, you have some people. And if you go to an Arabic cafe, then someone will notice that maybe you yeah. could be someone yeah. who needs a we'll passport ask you. You need, they ask you. Yeah, you ask yeah. me, you need going to Europe, I'll help you. Yeah. Give me 2,000, give me like that, like that, like that. Mm. After that, we'll uh, have a fake passport, any, can- any country you need it. Do they make it like with your face and your name or is it a no, fake name? And- some, sometime, sometime we'll give you uh, your name, uh, not your name, your face, your photo, do, do it in the passport, but uh, one name from Europe, Jack Williams, like that. What, what was you called in your passport? Uh, William Fierce, William Fierce. <laughs> yeah, I remember where, that. Where were you from? Uh, Belgica. Oh, okay. <laughs> In Belgica. Can't change nationality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you pay money, you can't change nationality. Yeah. <laughs> Between 3,000 to 5,000 euro. Mm. 
at some point you must have decided that you wanted to come to Denmark and mm. seek the asylum, right? Yeah. But why Denmark? Like you could have stayed in Italy, right? Or you could have gone to Germany. Yeah, or... yeah. Uh, I am thinking for coming to Imara, uh, Denmark because you have uh, resident quickly. Ask me two months, we'll have resident. And your family bring uh, quickly, quickly. Because that I coming to Denmark. Did you consider like stuff like the culture or the weather? Or did you consider where it would be nicest to live? Not, when care, you about, not care about that. <laughs> not care about that. The care about save your life and save your family life and how they bring your family quickly to you. Not care about weather, not care for about fire, not care about anything. But when you can save your life. I'm thinking all Europe you can save your life. But you were thinking about what better for your, you and your family. But, as Omar told us, you can't always trust what you hear. The information he had gotten on the refugee routes, information about how the Danish system was very fast, turned out to be completely wrong. I go to office, please, my case, now one month. Tell me one month, wait, wait, wait. And they never tell you what, like why it no, takes longer. No, or... no, just wait. After that, just wait, 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 wait. I'm thinking I'm waiting maybe two years. I'm waiting five years. My family waiting in the Jordan. I'm going to Copenhagen and the immigration. I'll tell him, please, I need to see my case. Tell me no problem, wait. I am not like to wait. Omar Jabra was accepted as an asylum seeker about seven months after he arrived in Denmark. That's actually very fast compared to the average seeker who spends 17 months in a Danish center. In the same center as Omar, we met Rasha Zakilaham, also from Syria. She lived in the center with her two sons for a year and eight months. As a refugee in Denmark, you're waiting without a deadline. Just waiting. No end in sight. Could be a month, could be two years. Rasha explains how this feels. Besides having to go through war, fear and stress back home, there is more fear and stress here. We have no information about our residency or deportation. My children go to school here and have been learning Danish. Every time the boys connect with some kids and make friends, suddenly the other family gets residence permits and leave the center. This affects them psychologically. They see a doctor, and I do too. Russia's case illustrates just how broken the current system is. She originally had her fingerprint taken in Italy. That means that she, according to the current rules, has to seek asylum there. But Italy has treated asylum families with kids so poorly that the European Human Rights Court has decided that it would be inhumane to send families back to Italy. Denmark can't send her back, but they're also not ready to grant her asylum. So she waits and waits and waits. You can see my face. It reflects how tired I feel. Now my children speak the language very well, but I do not know my fate. I want to feel like I can have a normal life like other people, for the boys' sake. People are very nice here at the center. They never make us feel different. I had friends here, but all of them got residency permits. This is why I feel lonely now. I wish I knew what my future is and what my fate will be. Your cruise is almost over, but before we let you go, let's take a small sneak peek into the future. 
Our fortune teller is called Michael Wirtz. He's a senior fellow at American Progress, where he's worked intensively with climate change and migration in Africa. It turns out that bombs are not the only thing that drive people away from their homes. There are several factors. There's, of course, the uh, immediate threat of violence and civil war, which has been a tremendous issue in northern Africa, but uh, even more so in Syria and in Iraq. At the same time, there is a certain uh, number of people that move not only because of economic reasons, but also because of increasing uh, climate impact. If you look at countries like uh, Nigeria, uh, for example, where um, water has been an increasing uh, problem, where water withdrawals are growing sixfold over the next uh, five to ten years, people are running out of water, uh, villages get lost, people whose livelihood depends on agriculture or fishing for that matter have no other option but to either move to the larger cities in their own country or try to make their way to the European Union. So there are a lot of push factors uh, which are not going to change because we have to factor in that global warming and climate change are realities and that will drive Africans towards other places, uh, most of all towards Europe. The current level of migration could easily become a new normal and the European leaders are underestimating that scenario grossly. This neglect will only hurt Europe itself, and that's not just measured in human suffering, but also in something as boring as demographics. Some of the African economies are much more rapidly growing than Europe. There's a lot of economic potential in Africa, but at the same time, Africa is one of the few regions in the world that has actually experienced uh, population growth. In Europe, the situation is uh, is quite uh, different. And if you look at the longer term projections, which are pretty astounding, for example, in the case of Germany, which has now uh, over 80 million inhabitants, the median projection for the end of the century is between 36 and 40 million, which means that in the foreseeable future, Germany is going to lose a lot of population, and so are the European countries, and these populations are going to be aging. The demographic structure in countries like Spain, Italy, not even to speak about Russia, is much worse than it is in Germany. So to, um, to believe that you can just live in an aging society in European economies, which are export uh, dependent, uh, in a continent that doesn't have uh, much uh, in terms of natural resources, and and not modernize society and making immigration part of that legal immigration, which is structured in a, in a reasonable way, that that would be politically irresponsible. Lastly, are you uh, do you see uh, do you see reason to be optimistic? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> so, on that positive note, we've reached our last port of call. No more cocktails. No more lounging by the pool. Cruise over. There will be no refunds. Yes, it might not have been the sunniest cruise, but when Planet Mundus sails, at least everybody makes it home safe. This Planet Mundus short was produced by Ole Krogsgaard, Freja Eriksen and Nehel El-Sharif. If you enjoyed the cruise, please let us know. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter and all the rest of those places. From Planet Mundus, ahoy! Okay, okay, that was the last one. Just...